Welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Today, we're thrilled to have Michael Abbott, Senior Managing Director and Global Banking Lead at Accenture on the Banking Transform podcast. On this episode, we explore the top banking trends from 2024, diving into a world where AI, cloud computing, and the new regulatory landscapes are redefining the banking industry. We discuss the need for banks to adapt to changing customer expectations and the growing importance of sustainable banking practices. We also highlight the need for speed and culture, emphasizing the practical application of these trends. The conversation provides a roadmap for banks and credit unions to navigate the evolving banking ecosystem and to embrace these transformative trends. It is no surprise that the speed of change and the impact of AI is at the foundation of many of the transformative trends of 2024. With exponential technologies advancing, our guest today shares where incumbent institutions face threats or opportunities to reinvent experiences amid nonstop disruption. So, Michael, you've joined us the last few years to discuss Accenture's annual take on the trends in the banking industry. You know, it's interesting. So much is going on and change is happening so fast, but there are still some emerging trends that should excite or alarm bankers, most of which as we enter 2024 with the economy in the shape it is today. So which trends may feel overhyped or maybe underappreciated right now? Yeah, Jim, it's great to be back again this year. I, I, this is one of my one of my favorite podcasts that I get to do with you because it's, it's, we, we cover a lot of ground. And it, it's a great question you started with, which is which trends are overhyped and which ones are, are not. Um, what I would say right now is if you look at generative AI and I think the when you look at where it's going, one of the things I think that's happened, I actually think it may very well be underhyped at this point in time, right? And where I think the where I think the industry sees a lot of the potential and sees it pretty quickly is certainly I think on the cost side of it. But where I think it actually may be underestimated is the revenue potential upside for the banks on this technology. Because when you look at this, and I look back, and it, when we wrote this year's report, we realized that um, 1999 was the height of the dot com boom. Hard to imagine that. 2024 is 25 years later, a quarter of a century of digital. It's been a quarter of a century of digital. And we went back and we looked and we said, hey, where's the equivalent of the Amazon, the Google, or the Facebook of the banking industry? Where's that big disruptor, right? Because it was, right. it was so hyped. You can't find one. So at the end of the day, digital fundamentally altered how we bank. I think we can all agree on that, but it did not alter banking itself. And when you look at generative AI, Unlike digital that, in, that really changed how we bank, I think generative AI is going to hit every single function inside of the bank yeah. over the next yep. five, five to 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting because when we looked at the digitalization of banking, we were able to, as an industry, simply do what we always had done, but in new ways using digital technology. So even though we should have rethought how we did it, we kind of just turned everything that we were doing in person to be able to do it digitally. And as you mentioned, you know, when we look at completely upending an industry, the potential of generative AI is really going from experiences to engagement, from, from the ability to deliver transactions to be able to deliver experiences in a way that, that makes a difference to the consumer, the small business, the corporation, using insight, data, and AI to drive 
predictive analytics, to drive better recommendations, and as you said, to drive revenue. Because generative AI really has the ability, I believe, to increase the value transfer. It's not an even deal between like it was back in the the beginning of digitalization, where it's kind of like, okay, we just did it differently, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, sometimes more complex. But this really changes everything. So when you look at it not being just the next shiny object, how can banks best harness generative AI to boost productivity and efficiency without losing the human touch? Yeah, and, and 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 Jim, you covered a lot of ground in the front end of that, and I, I I couldn't I couldn't agree more with you. I think, in many ways, in becoming digital, if you roll the tape backwards and you think about banking in the 1990s, banks would have told you that 60 to 70 percent of the value of the franchise came through people walking into the branch after they got a deposit account and being able to sell them a mortgage, a credit card, an auto loan, deepening the relationship, and all of that happened through conversations, right? And in becoming digital. We become, the way I would describe it, we become functionally correct. We can push people through our wireframes. We can make sure they can check their balances. We can make sure they can pay their bills, but we become emotionally devoid. We've forgotten how to have a conversation. And what you're pointing at, Jim, is the real magic of generative AI is the ability to put humanity, a conversation back into it. But going a little deeper to answer your question very specifically about productivity and what happens is, what I'm seeing happen is, Generative AI can take an enormous amount of what I would describe as the waste in a process out, right? And the real question for banks is going to be, and this is my point I made earlier around revenue, are you as a bank going to simply take that waste out and take it to the bottom line, which you can do, you can take it in terms of productivity, or are you going to use it to do exactly what you described, which is put the value back in? Let me, get, let me be a specific example. Give me a second here around mortgages. Let's take U.S. mortgages in particular, right? They require a, a loan officer to dive through a Fannie, Freddie Mae document that might be 1,500, 2,000 pages long, look for red flags. And then, by the way, if the consumer happens or the, the, your customer happens to have a challenge with their down payment, there's 1,000 down payment assistant programs out there, state by state by state. Name one mere mortal loan officer that could get through all of that, what I just described. Yeah. Now, take generative AI, vectorize the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae requirements, have the loan officer put the loan against it, look for the red flags, pull it up, help guide them into the conversation. And when the down payment assistant, when the down payment's a challenge, it can search through the thousands of down payment programs and then recommend one to the loan officer. All of a sudden, that loan officer's job, could you double the productivity? Absolutely. But would you rather take the time to focus now on getting in a down payment, closing more loans yeah. and being driving the top line and having a conversation again with a customer. And that's what I really believe the power to generate is, is to get beyond this functionally correct, emotionally devoid world of digital that we've created, which is by the way, has app ratings that are very high and get back into having a conversation and growing the top line of the banks again. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because it gets away from transactions and costs exactly. and really does get into, as you mentioned, a value transfer, which takes into account trust, risk, speed, all these elements that are value-added elements, even when you talk about the ability to mo make more of an open banking model around the mortgage process to bring more value, <clears throat> excuse me, more value to the equation. And what's interesting, we're, we're jumping into generative AI right now, and yet we haven't fully, in my opinion, in your opinion, I've heard, read, embraced 
digital maturity. So, you know, we we talk about, I always call it the digital account opening, the digital loan process, where we do a, a research project. And we find out that 80% of the organization says we can open an account and we can do a loan application digitally. Well, that's true. But if you were to ask the consumer, is this a digital loan or digital new account opening process, they'd say there's no way. It's taking me 15 minutes on my phone still. So we haven't even got fully out of the digitalization process and and make ourselves ready for the AI process. So when you look at your your predictions for 2024, obviously generative AI was a major element of, of almost every one of the predictions in some way. What were the two or three predictions that you have that go beyond just generative AI, but really look at the way we do banking? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So let me give you let me give you two in particular, right? One is we talked about the digital dividend, right? And, and, the, and it goes back to the heart of what you're talking about is that if you look at all of our digital touch points right now, for the most part, banks treat them as, you know, check your balance, pay your bills functions. They're, 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 meant, they're meant to offset servicing, right? If you turn that around, you think about those digital touch points like a, like a Facebook would or like a Google would, you would treat them, those unique opportunities as gold. And you would say, how do I embed an experience in there that allows me to deepen the relationship, do what I did in the branch before? And by the way, this, this doesn't mean dropping a banner ad on the mobile app, right? But Jim, it goes right to the heart of what you just said, which is imagine now that I can sit into my mobile app and I have my I have a credit card feature functionality. And just like I do on my Apple phone, I could slide it over and turn it on. Digital should be that simple to be able to add feature products and functionality. And that's a great way to integrate in and monetize the touch points of digital, solve that humanity question you're talking about, and frankly, push digital to the point where, you know, it, where its logical conclusion should be, which it should be make things very, very simple, not a 15-minute process, right? So that's one, I think, um, very transformative uh, trend that's sitting out there. The other one, which I think a lot of people aren't paying attention to, but I think maybe the single most transformative one as we look forward over the next decade is this next generation of cloud that we're seeing right now. Yeah. And this kind of what I would call operating in a cloud-first mentality. And again, it may sound very technical to many people, but... We're looking at it right now. We're actually working on the third generation of cloud initiatives at many of the banks. And this third generation, what's happening is instead of banks taking their internal experiences and projecting them onto the cloud, they're saying, how do I build the bank to look like a cloud, to be able to stand up, stand down features, functionalities, not to put a bunch of checklists on the security patterns, but to embed it in. And when you take that cloud first mentality, all of a sudden you're going to build your infrastructure, even if it's on-prem, to look like the cloud. And furthermore, you know, this is not as big for the US, but there's these new requirements in Europe called DORA, which says that any critical process in banking has to be work on, on multiple clouds at the same time or on has to be able to be moved back and forth. What that I believe, Jim, is gonna push us to, this is gonna be a moment in time like the early 90s when you had TCP IP, LU 6.2, SNA protocols. You had all these networking protocols competing with each other. But all of a sudden, the internet protocol, the open source standard wins. I believe you're about to see kind of an open source standard in cloud computing as a core base lit win that allow you to move applications back and forth very seamlessly. Add that in with the ability of generative AI to do the development going forward. You have 
I think, a new bank operating system in the world that's going to start emerging over the next three to five years. I think that may be very well the most transformative trend and change fundamentally the way banking works from being hundreds of operating systems to being much more like TCP IP as a standard. So it's interesting. We, we know that cloud can increase velocity and can handle a lot more data. How do you see it changing culture across the banking industry? And just as importantly, how do you see cloud and composability, the composable solutions working together to make it so that maybe banking can catch up to the, the lack of innovation they've had as to how banking can be done? Yeah, so so let's start let's start with the culture one first, and then maybe go to the maybe go to a little more tactical on that front. Um, you know, and again, this is one of the big trends we see for this year. This beyond just beyond just generalities, we call it from technology to engineering, right? And you've seen some great banks out there, like BBVA has talked about it very publicly. I can tell you privately, a number of banks are looking at it, saying, "Look, you know, is is your role to take forward, and is is compute become standardized? Is the components become standardized as?" Generative AI can help you do development and, and, and forward engineer from specifications directly in the code. The real, the real value in technology is going to be created in engineering. It's going to be around having those product engineers that understand the business really well yeah. and the testers. That distance is going to collapse. And this cultural shift from being the CTO, CIO of the organization to being the chief engineer of the organization to being the engineers that are leading the product development of the bank, I think you will see as a major shift over the next three to five years, especially as technology fades in the background and it becomes more important, as you mentioned, the second part is you have composable architectures. It becomes the engineers that can pull the building blocks together of those different components to build applications and product feature functionality at paces and speed you just couldn't do before. So it is a, it is a, Great question, Jim, and I, and I do firmly believe we're moving from a world of technology to engineering. And, and well, it's interesting because you talk about the engineering concept. You talk about the AI and generative AI. In your report, you talk about the power of pricing, and, and you mentioned the cloud situation. You know, all these take bankers going beyond what they learned as bankers. While their while their legacy knowledge is certainly always going to be key, because you still have to know how to do the concepts of banking, a lot of what's going on in the marketplace now is brand new, and we can't just flip our our flip a switch and change all the employees. How do you see the future of learning and the future of leadership adjusting to what you know your list of of ten trends are all? new to banking to one degree or the other. They, they are. And to, to your point, I'll be, I'll be clear. I, I don't think the nature of banking, taking deposits and loans, that, that is banking, right? We all know right. that is not going to change. But the way you do that banking underneath, I think will change dramatically. And specifically, I think the question you're getting at is one of culture, right? Yeah. And it's interesting being in the job I'm in because I get to see bank cultures from the outside and which ones are winning and which ones I think are probably laggards. I would say, if I were to boil it down, one word, curiosity. The banks that have a culture of curiosity tempered with execution and risk focus are the ones I see winning. Because of the ones, when I walk in, it's very interesting as a consultant walking in. When you walk into a bank, and I can tell you some of the smartest banks in the world I walk into, they are just grilling me for information left and right. There's other ones, which I think we could probably argue are not some of the best ones, 
I walk in, they tell me how smart they are, how much they know, and they're not yeah. willing to learn. So, Jim, if I were to bullet down the one thing from that point of view, I think the culture of the bank and that natural sense of curiosity tempered with with a, with risk foundation and execution is going to be the is going to be the things you have to do. And what you have to do to answer your question very specifically is you cannot go out and hire somebody with five years experience in any of these things. You're going to have to invest in your talent. And if you can have yep. that naturally curious talent and you make that investment, I think that is a winning combination for the banks. You know, it's interesting, Mike. Is I as I same thing as you. When I go visit banks, um, it sounds overly simplistic, but overly difficult both, whereby you say, I can tell in about a 10-minute discussion with leadership whether or not they're innovative, whether or not they're really embracing the change that's necessary, and whether or not they're going to be digitally and AI mature, or if they're going to extend, extend continually in that that mass in the middle. Yep. And it's amazing. You, 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 you think... That would be more than that. But it's not the amount of money they spend on technology. I see a whole lot of firms spending a whole lot of technology and not getting anywhere because it's deployment. It's it's embracing what you're trying to accomplish. And then on the other hand, I see some very small organizations that can't invest all that money doing extraordinarily well because, as you said, they have that curiosity to do different. And you just go, wow, they are punching way above their weight in the capabilities. But, you know, in, in a time like this where everything's changing so fast, unless you get on the train, you will get left behind. That's very cliche-ish. But the reality is it it goes beyond true. I mean, you you said you can, you can take just a few minutes and say, I hear what they say, but they're not there and they're not getting there. You know, it, it's it, it's very difficult. And, and, and those organizations have a very hard time getting rid of their legacy debt um, tech debt, whereby they they look to solve the problems, but they, they don't do it well, or they bring a composable solution, and then they change it on the way in, and you go, wait, this, you didn't buy this. You you just kind of like, you bought it, but then you changed it before it got implemented. Yeah, and, and by the way, it goes right to the heart of where we started this conversation, technology versus engineering. If you're technology, you're thinking, I've got to, I'm going to implement what I've got. If you're engineering, you're thinking, how am I solving the problem? It goes to that very heart of natural curiosity and willingness to learn, listen, and take things forward. And I'll tell you, I think that is going to be the major factor that separates the winners from the losers may very well be the culture more than the technology. And, and we talked about that in the report too. The ability yeah. to learn, the ability to have an organization that's willing to learn and move forward in a time of change like this, when you can't just go hire five years of prior experience from somebody is, is different. In fact, Jim, I would tell you, I had, a, I had a bank come in the other day and they said to me, they go, can you do a benchmarking study for me on, you know, and can you get out the rear view mirror, Mike, and put it in the car and tell me what everyone else did two to three years ago and what I should be doing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, yeah, I can, I can do that for you, but that's not the answer. The answer is you need to be looking out the front window and asking what's coming and how can I read, how can I redefine, how can I reinvent the very way that I'm working don't ask me about the rearview mirror because the rearview mirror never catch up. You'll never, never catch, catch up. up. You'll never catch up. And, and that yeah. that sums it up. That sums it up. That sums it up right there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, at the same time, we're in an environment that still has significant regulatory pressures, and I'm gonna call them trade group association pressures, where everybody's pulling, trying to make things even. But from an outsider point of view, it it tends to slow down the process. So, how do banks balance innovation? against the regulatory challenges in the current landscape? I mean, how do you see regulation keeping pace 
with an industry and with consumers that want so much more, but we tend to we tend to kind of sell ourselves. We put ourselves in handcuffs sometimes. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. We talked about this also in this year's trends around yeah. around the kind of the, what I would say is the the need for collaboration between the banking industry and the regulators, right? Because it's it's been a, it's in many ways it's a game of cat and mouse, and I don't think it has to be because they both need each other going forward. And to the extent that they can kind of get closer together, I think in many ways will make their lives simpler. I mean, to you know, it kind of goes a little bit to the engineering mindset we've said before, which is you have to have natural curiosity, associated, but you also have to have a mindset of risk and execution, right? You have to say, you have to do what you say you are going to do. And I think that's a lot of times what um, where banks get challenged on that front. But the, look at it more broadly from a regulatory point of view. This is happening right now quietly. It's certainly happening in the U.S. and happening in Europe, where the regulators and banks are starting to talk to each other and saying, look, how can I share the information back and forth that you need to be able to monitor, look at what I'm doing? How can I basically make regulatory the regulatory process basically just embedded? into what I do every day, right. whether it be from an alcohol perspective or whether it be from an operations and controls, because when you do that, it changes. And I can tell you, I had one bank that did this when they did their agile process. What they did, Jim, is they pulled, they took, you know, usually regulatory is like a backend control function. It's like a gate that you have to get through later on. They took the regulatory piece and they brought it all the way into the agile team in the front end and they embedded regulatory compliance people in the front right. of the agile yep. process yep. and they embedded regulatory thinking into the design of the product. They went from probably 70 different controls to two to three on the front end now and everything flows through. And I can tell you, this is one of those banks that does not get MRAs. So it goes back to the culture of embedding it right up yep. front into the process. So I, I think you're about to see a, 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 a complete change in thinking from the cat and mouse game to one of, look, we need each other, and regula- regulation and controls need to be embedded into our way of thinking going forward, not just be an afterthought as a gate that's you know checked farther down the process. You know, it's interesting. We, we talk about that with organizations that I talk to as well, saying, you know, you got to put the people you're most afraid of, the regulatory compliance, what used to be the, the legal side, but the legal side now says, hey, we're just going to tell you our opinion on what could happen if you do this this way, as opposed to the yes, no switch. Well, the problem is you got human nature involved. If you involve regulatory and compliance on the front end and have them buy into what you're doing, you're not going to run against that problem of, well, I don't understand what you mean by this because they haven't been in the meetings. And I don't understand. I'm only going to take it from the black and white perspective. And that's, you'll never move forward in that way. So, you know, Michael, as you look back to 2023, uh, boy, that seems like 15 years ago instead of one, what what did you maybe get wrong on the predictions last year? Was there one that, that you said, geez, we kind of missed the mark. We either overshot or we undershot. Yeah, there's there's some ones we definitely get wrong, and I I actually like I like I think I think admitting your mistakes is a it, not I was maybe I won't say mistakes, but admitting what you probably didn't get so right is a good one. Look, I mean we talked about the metaverse last year, right? That we thought it would find yeah. its footing. I, I still believe the metaverse will will get out there, especially if you look at Apple with the way they're launching the, the new headset. It's going to be there, but until we get to kind of an equivalent of an HTTPS, open standards, and the ability to do all that, I do think eventually, Jim, instead of you and I being on speakers and microphones here, we'll be on headsets and we'll be able to do this. We'll be able to do this podcast virtually at yep. some point in time. But you know, um, I think we're I think we're a little early. I think we're maybe a little early on that one, thinking that was going to have an impact last year. Yeah. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. 
we'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So I'm joined today by Michael Abbott, Senior Managing Director, Global Banking Lead at Accenture. We've been exploring the challenges, opportunities, and strategies that will define winners and losers in 2024. So Michael, we were talking about all the different trends that you see coming and the probability. And as we said, the generative AI, which it's amazing, it's only November of last year, the revolution of what generative AI can bring to the table and, and the recognition of what AI as a, as a tool can be is kind of underlying almost every one of the trends. But when you look at other trends that are not as tactical and maybe not as monetary driven, one of them is the importance of sustainability and ethical banking. What do you see happening in 2024 in this space that sometimes it's really hard to get your hands around and, and bankers like things that drive revenue, all this. But, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a, a, a real wave of understanding of what sustainable banking, ethical banking can be. Yeah. And, and, and we had um, we had trends in the prior year, generally called it, it green. Green gets real. And, and the point we're the point we've been making about this and the trend, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing I'm seeing it kind of go from a, a point of hype to a point of, okay, what is the reality of what we can really do and how should we do it and how should we go about it? So I've, I've seen many banks that have made the commitments publicly, but they're, they're, they're working with their suppliers to ensure that their suppliers have a strategy and that they know what they're doing. They're working with the risk and underwriting with their, with even their commercial clients to at least understand where they are and be able to measure it. Now, they may not have the perfect plan. They may not be carbon neutral or the other pieces they want, but they're working on the commercial side to figure that out. And then I would say what's fascinating is most aggressively is I'm seeing a whole host of European banks, which has a more um, politically, you know, it's driven more of a policy in Europe than it has been in the United States, actually, believe it or not, coming and looking to come to the United States to do underwriting around what I would call a sustainable banking on that front, yeah. try to lead the way. So it's, in many ways, Jennifer, I would boil it down, some, I'd say green gets real, right? We're, we're moving past the 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 hyperboles and you know, the, the, the hyperbolic language and we're moving towards a, a scientific thoughtful approach to saying how do we actually make this happen and i think that's a good thing for everybody involved you know when we look at banking today a lot of the innovations in 2023 happen around payments and the starting of embedded finance and, and we we talk about this without sometimes knowing exactly how this is going to all transform and how many you're going to play and to what degree. But when you look at the the balance between those, you look at, let's say, um, mobile wallets, that, that really seems to be something that from a consumer perspective could really take off because the power of what a wallet can do and, and embedded finance words everywhere. And, you know, a lot of what happens today, we almost take for granted. We, we go through the, the toll booth at the, uh, on the turnpike and we don't stop. We just have our little trigger device. And it's really elementary. But when you look at, as I brought up before the break, what Uber does with the embedded, everything from meal plans to deliveries to experiences all around your point of getting into a car to the point of disparking. You know, this is really changing the way banking's done. 
How do you see this taking shape in 2024? Yeah, a couple of different things, and I'll give you I'll give you two sides to that, Jim. One is on the embedded banking side. You mentioned some great examples of the consumer side, where all of a sudden the payment is just simply embedded into the Uber experience, into your Instacart experience, into your Amazon experience. It's it's just incredibly simple. You don't even think about, frankly, how you're paying for it on the other side of it. And I think that's a great example of embedded banking. The same thing. Instantly, we see it starting to come true on the commercial banking side now, which is quite fascinating. Yeah. What you're seeing, transaction banking, cash management, and those pieces being embedded directly into the accounts payable systems, where all of a sudden you're able to integrate banking directly in. And I think that is going to be a fascinating trend on the commercial banking side of the equation is embedded banking over there and how that works. And what we've talked about is payments. You're also, I believe, going to see that on the lending side of it, where you'll be able to have loans that micro loans and other pieces that will come out very quickly to be able to finance different components of this. I think that's going to be happening. Um, you'll start seeing that happen as we go into the next year. But if you look at the other side of that, which you talked about, you talked about the mobile payments, the mobile wallets. I think that may be, that may be a, a very fascinating point um, in 2024, because if you look at the EU regulations, the EU just came out and has said, look, with Apple, that they have to open up NFC. So it's an interesting, yeah. it's, a, it's a very interesting thought experience for any of your listeners today to just simply ask yourself the question. If you have Bank X, ask yourself the question, why can I not tap and pay with my Bank X mobile banking app? Why do I yeah. have to go to another wallet? Why shouldn't I be able to tap and pay with that wallet? And why shouldn't I be able to do that? And that leads you right down that path of the EU. So this kind of um, you know cold war for the user experience around payments I think is going to be a is, a is a very interesting theme to watch in 2024. And who's going to own it? I mean, just today, word came out that uh, PayPal is putting five new capabilities into their, their system, which is really enhancing the wallet capability. Well, if PayPal's doing that, how is the financial institution itself going to be part of that play? Or are they going to be or behind Apple or one of those others? How do you not get left behind and become simply, you know, the the where, money warehouse, as Ron yeah. Shevlin often says? So, you know, it's interesting, you know, we're looking at one year, we're looking at 2024, but we really have to take things into context and say, you know, what's going to happen five years down the road or within the next five years, I should say. So we're usually wrong on these. Or, or could be, but what emerging technologies or capabilities do you think will separate the digital banking leaders from the laggards in the next five years? So that doesn't mean you have to get specific as to what's going to happen in the future, but what will be the separating point? What do you see in the industry today that may be boding well or terribly for organizations because they're, they're maybe not getting on board or they are getting on board? Yeah, when you look at it specifically around the technology, I mean, there's, there's a few. And we talked about one, which is this mobile. You know, who's gonna who's gonna own the user experience of, of tap to pay yeah. in the long run? Is it gonna be a is it gonna be a third party, or will the banks somehow come back around that? And I, I don't think there's too many that are winning on that front at the moment right now. And I think it's a it's a big it's a big question for the boards and the, and the CEOs of those companies. Um, but in particular, I think there's a few things. I think one. This idea, as we talked about earlier, or this kind of cloud-first mentality, the, you know, the, the banks that can find a way to simplify their infrastructure and get towards, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get towards a single operating system, but start to bring that down, I think we'll have an enormous advantage when it comes to speed, execution, and cost of technology, right, when, if they can get to that platform. I think that's a, it's a really interesting way of thinking of kind of, again, back to the analogy of the 1990s, when you had 
you know, SNA protocol, TCP IP, Novell, where you had all these different protocols, Apple Talk, and all of a sudden you had a standard that emerged that changed everything and made the internet made it that much simpler for everybody. I think the same thing is going to happen for the banks on the technology compute side. I also think um, relative to generative AI, I think the banks that can take a customer centric approach and move beyond these functionally correct experiences, you know, functionally correct emotionally devoid, yep. and find a way to understand the intent of the customer, much like a branch manager would have done 50 years ago, and embed that experience into their mobile and all their touch points and connect those experiences across channels. The ones who figure out how to do that are going to have an unsaleable position from both a retention point of view. And I also believe from a franchise point of view with the ability to deepen the relationship and extract, get substantial more value out of those customers. Right. I, I, Cannot agree more. I mean, I think it's so interesting, the whole concept of what generative AI could help you do yeah. in actually showing empathy, where where you, you talk about a predictive analytics and things of this nature, but let's go beyond that and say not just predictive on what I would do, but predictive analytics on what I should do to make my relationship better. And that happens on both scales of the spectrum. You know, that can help those people that that need financial wellness, that really need answers as to how do I take care of my my tech, my debt right now? How do I take care of my work situation? How do I deal with daycare? Those answers could come from the financial institution. On the other hand, how do I rejigger my, my investment portfolio for the future? And you really are – we're in a position as financial institutions to really help – Every single consumer, small business, and big business do better with the data that we hold. We know more than anybody could ever imagine. And if we were able to take everything you know about me, you could help me be a better financial steward. And I think you're right. I think that's really going to separate the winners from the losers. And it may not be all driven by the money that an organization has to invest. It may get back to, as you mentioned earlier, culture. You know, what organizations will really live that as opposed to talk that? You know, it's, it's very interesting. So I'm going to throw a curveball your way now, Michael. So we had a discussion. Yeah, this one, this one may be taken off the podcast. We may say, you know what, we can't talk about this. But we were having a discussion a, a week ago with some friends and talking about the fact that do we even have a top five or top ten banking organizations in the U.S. right now? Or do we have one and all the rest? Has Chase Bank made themselves so powerful in the way they can leverage technology, they can invest in in branches, they can invest in relationships, they can use that data to drive experiences and engagement. Are all the rest of the top four or five or six playing catch up to one that really right now has just the mentality, the culture, and the investable assets to making banking different. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not saying that all the rest have to pack it in. I, I see small banks that are going to be here well beyond my years. But I'm wondering, are we really seeing a u- unique situation in the industry that we're not really revealing that says, you know what, we have we have one big, powerful bank and all the rest? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that one. But what I can tell you, Jim, is looking at it because I have a global perspective, right? So I get right. to see all the banks right. around the world outside oh. of the United States, which is fascinating because when you when you when you open the aperture 
beyond the United States, what you do is you see many banks that are not of the scale and scope of the ones you mentioned here in the United right. States that I think are exceeding exceptionally well. So my view is, my view is it is absolutely possible. It's a question of leadership and desire, the culture, and do you, do you want to, do you, do you have the wherewithal to execute with that type of mindset? And in fact, in many ways, what we are talking about through this whole podcast is the democratization of technology, right? You know, I would say that uh, five years ago, you had to hire a bunch of PhDs in AI machine learning. Now I can buy these large language models by the drink using a credit card, right? So the real question becomes now is not so much, um, you know, is there going to be one? I think the bigger question is, are others going to step up and actually realize the game that's being played here? I think that's the bigger question. Boy, Michael, that is a great answer. And it wasn't even political. I mean, I, because, you know, because the reality, you're right. We we have this, you know, I, I kid about the fact that when I started traveling internationally and, and sometimes just to Canada, I realized the difference in perspective as to we think, um, you know, the rest of the world thinks they're part of a, a global universe. We think we're the center of the universe um, as as the United States. But you're right. You look at, at, at WeBank. You look at. Emirates NBD. You look at Lacasia. You look at BBVA. You know, BBVA. Oh, Tesla Sao Paulo. The European banks that have that have incredible cross sell rates on the digital side, infinitely better than any oh, other. You you look at you look at some of the payment capabilities now in South America and in Africa, and you go, you know what? These people are almost ahead of everybody because they built everything on a digital platform. They they're they're brand new, new in both the the spellings that are out there. But you look at this, and you're right. Uh, maybe in the U.S., you you have one big behemoth that then and again it gets down to culture. I, I think their culture works very well for them. They make mistakes, they admit them. Um, they have a very visionary perspective because of their leader. And it gets down to that. You know, it's funny how we, in this conversation about the trends, how many times we got right back to culture. You know, we should, we should, banks have to take that into account because you don't have to be big to have a great culture. And just because you're big doesn't mean you have a winning culture. So if you had one major recommendation for banks looking to thrive in 2024 and beyond, what would that one recommendation be? Curiosity right where I started the whole culture question, right? Curiosity tempered with execution, with focused execution, right? Because if you can manage to hold those two somewhat incongruous thoughts in your head, in your organization, I think you will be a major winner this year, right? Because, you know, in many scenarios now, you can't go out and say, give me somebody with five years of generative AI experience. You have to invent this. It goes right back to the point we're making. Banks that are focused on the rearview mirror are always going to be two to three years behind. And this is a point in time, a change in technology and capability that it requires someone looking out the front windshield almost all the time. Boy, what a great thought. You know, you, you look at what you do for a living, what I do for a living. We, we visit organizations often or we make presentations, but a lot of times it's visiting organizations. If those organizations are calling you in because they want to know what they should do and then are really bought into doing what you say as opposed to simply saying, oh, good, we got that Accenture meeting out of the way, you realize, well, I may not have all the answers or you may not have all the answers. The fact that you asked the questions and you had the right people in the room to look at them 
you're already so far ahead of your competition. I had a conversation on Friday with a with an organization in the Middle East, and I, I and the fact that they were inviting me to come in and they have a monthly meeting with all their senior leadership to look at what's going on in the industry and new perspectives. All these go. And they're actually doing things with those. I, I go, I told the firm, I said, you know, guys, I already see you as one of the leaders in the industry globally. And I said, what, why you want me to come in? They go, because we never think we have all the answers. And that says so much about an organization. And it doesn't, that again, it doesn't matter what size it is. You know, it can be in the Midwest of the United States. It can be in the Middle East or in China. Um, even though you're surrounded by a lot of great minds, it's, it's, are you letting those minds in to talk about it? So, Michael, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show today and, and bringing your wisdom. And it's interesting because you always bring some surprises. You, you always leave with some extraordinary nuggets. And I think the one you left with this year, the whole idea of curiosity, that's going to stand the test of time because it overrides everything else. It overrides the amount of money you have to invest. It does open the door to composable solutions because if you bring in the people that have already figured it out and they're there to always have to be on top of that, it's better than staying with your legacy solution sometimes. So again, Michael, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your ideas on what to expect in 2024. Thank you, Jim. We can all learn something from anybody every day. That's right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking and the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate the support we receive to make this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hasley, and your audio engineer and video producer, Will Pritz. If you're not already done so, please remember to subscribe to Banking Transform on both your favorite podcast app and on YouTube for more thought-provoking discussions on the intersection of finance, technology, and leadership. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.